Welcome to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. This is Chris. And this is Kate. We have been travelling quite a bit, so apologies for our schedule getting a bit out of whack. Uh, I think on the last episode we covered Mobile World Congress. There has been another event that has been taking up my time the past couple of weeks, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, we are going to cover a few links. And most of these are from Kate, because I'm going to mostly talk about the event I went to. So, Kate, maybe you'd like to kick off with the first link that took your interest. Sure. This is one from um, late February from Tech Times, from Aaron Mamet. And it's Google deleted only 43% of 2.4 million right-to-be-forgotten requests. And this is interesting in the time of when we're talking about privacy being a major interest. Um, obviously, we've seen the news with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And this is the, the fact that um, Google does have a... Um, an option that you can request your your data to be removed with reference to your name and so on, so that people uh, can remove search results that involve their names and personal details. Um, This actually started with a ruling in the European Court of Justice in 2014, um, which said that, um, you know, people had this right to apply. However, simply requesting it is not guarantee a deletion. So Google just considers if the information's in question is inaccurate, inadequate, irrelevant or excessive, or if there's public interest for the information to stay online, which is very interesting. Um, so those, you know, those photos you, you had of your 18th birthday 20 years ago or in, 20 years later may come back to haunt you. But what the, the, I guess the, the bigger issue is that, um, the most requested type of information that people wanted to be delisted was professional information. Um, mm things like directories and things like that. Most of the information came from um, private individuals, so it wasn't, you know, corporates or politicians or celebrities or anything like that. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because they're currently in a bit still in legal battles with this kind of stuff because at the moment the right to be forgotten only requires Google to delist URLs um, from the European versions of the current search engines. Mm. And France in particular is arguing that um, the delisting should apply to all of Google's search engines worldwide, which is not, you know, unfair, I think. I think I think this is especially interesting at the moment as we enter the era of GDPR very soon, yeah. which we haven't really talked about much on the show. Not so but, much. And this is a much more broad-reaching policy. Uh, and if these kind of earlier attempts by the EU with the right to be forgotten and the cookie laws and things like that, and it kind of shows how uh, uninterpreted and misinterpreted and unacted upon they are by the companies they're aimed at, then will that be any better? Um, I suppose... Or have they have they learnt from previous efforts and, and will yeah I don't know so I think it's it's sort of well timed at the moment to realise this that just because the EU makes up regulation doesn't mean they have much of an effect because they're not generally targeting EU companies yeah exactly um, or they're targeting companies that have a global presence as you say yeah I mean the the I, to be honest with you I don't know about you Kate but I very rarely use Google Germany um, <laughs> so, not so much <laughs> shall mm, we say. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, and I, I, I think a lot of people predicted this would be the case, um, because where do you draw the line between information that 
ruined someone's lives or information that someone's just a bit ashamed of and wants removed? Um, and how do you make those judgments? Yeah, that's a really good actually, point. Actually, to be honest with you, 43% is possibly higher than I expected. Yeah. Um, and 2.4 million is, I mean, that's still, uh, that's like, like at least 900,000 or something. It's still quite a lot. Well, this is think the about thing, the yeah. It's got to take a lot of time to get through that kind of I guess data. it's manual, I would thought, not automatic. I don't know. Mm. I'm not sure. Yeah, interesting. Okay, um, we'll, we'll go through some, some more links. Maybe I'll just chuck in a quick short one sure. and then we'll go back to you, Kate. And then I'm going to just mention some short ones and then talk about uh, the event I was at. No problem. So firstly, actually, let's, let's stick with the EU. This is uh, something that popped up for me on the GitHub blog. And I'm still sort of uh, reading around it myself. And I guess I'm not going to cast any judgment. I'm going to kind of present it and leave it up to you to make your own decisions because I'm unsure about it myself. But um, the EU is also considering a copyright proposal that requires co-chairing platforms to monitor all the content that users upload for potential copyright infringement. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and this is difficult. Uh, I, I think a lot of, you know, what's, what's the phrase? Uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Mm. And coding is definitely one of these areas where a lot of code is shared. Um, it's, it's, well, it's not impossible to patent an algorithm, but it's quite hard to patent individual bits of code because when is an if loop, your if loop or someone else's if, sorry. And, oops, I made a complete faux pas there, programmer friends. When is an if statement, not an if loop, when is an if statement, your if statement versus someone else's if statement? So, And also they're mentioning that it will have a tremendous hit on performance and speed and infrastructure needed, um, especially for a platform like GitHub. Of course, GitHub is not an EU company. They're an American company. So again, are we seeing... Um, a pushback against some of these proposals mm. from the EU. Uh, so the, this GitHub blog post is asking you to give your opinion on the ruling because actually the EU are asking for your opinion. So if enough people say this is a dumb idea, this is a great idea, this is a dumb idea if you change X, Y, Z, then um, yeah, then they will, hopefully. Actually, I am not 100% sure if uh, the broadcast of this episode will make... Um, the GitHub representation, which is on the 20th of March, but still, uh, you can go and find links to communicate with your local members if you have an opinion on this subject. So I would strongly urge you to do that if you do. So what's next from you, Kate? Okay, um, I'd actually really like to talk about the social credit um, initiative in China at the moment. It was, I guess, first hitting the kind of the mainstream uh, in December last year, but... Um, it's actually got some renewed attention from this one is from Gizmodo in um let me just check who the um the writer is so we can give them appropriate The clip. writer is Rhett Jones. Rhett Jones. Um Files and it's filed under Black, Black Mirror, Mirror <laughs> which says something. <laughs> yeah. Um now the the way the social credit works and I will actually put the link to the fantastic article um in Wired because it is a really good research piece, is that um in China, people have a social ID card with, I guess, like a social security card type thing, um, but it's actually linked in in this instance to um, their financial transactions, so that it able to determine if people have been, you know, not paying things or defaulting on on loans or what have you. And um, when you actually read through the experience of a um, a writer 
just referring to the White article, who went back to China after three years in the UK. He noticed everyone was using this app and um, using it for payments um, instead of using money, which is, you know, mm. kind of a big deal. And he thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I'll, I'll do this. This is really convenient. And then suddenly this little icon popped up and it was like, oh, um, there's this social credit score. And I, it did mm. have a different name, I'll, I'll admit. Um, and gradually it was about what number you had gave you other benefits, for example, um, what kind of housing you could access. Um, it was, it could give you, um, increased advantages if you're applying for, um, work promotions. Um, it, it based it on who you're friends with, all kinds of stuff. But what's actually been released now is news that people that have bad social credit, could be blocked from taking planes and trains. So it's really? not only just having wow. something that okay. could benefit you, um, kind of the soft face of, um, you know, communist dictatorship, if you like, but now something that has some negative approaches. And the thing that's problematic when you talk about, like, what are we talking about with um, bad loans, people who've committed acts of serious dishonour, is that the legal system um is fairly problematic in China, as you could possibly imagine. And the, there's a number of examples detailed where people um, were unable to leave the country because they'd erroneously been charged for something that they didn't use and didn't, you know, tried to mm. cancel it and blah, blah, blah. And like I would the- imagine challenging that would be... A challenge. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's the whole thing is a very long article, but um, I think what's scary is that this whole thing is in line with a plan to construct this social credit system, where um, the the principle is once untrustworthy, always restricted. Mm. <laughs> so it enables um, government bodies to share information on the citizens' trustworthiness and issue penalties mm. based on this cre- credit score. So it's already been used to deny loans. Um, it was started in 2013. There's now over 9.59 million people um, that are using it. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, just, that's actually a tiny percentage of the population. Is it? That's quite strange. Yeah, 9.5 million is nothing. Yeah. Oh, well, the uh, actually, no, sorry, I stand corrected. The list oh. of discredited people is 9.59 oh, right, 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 million. Right. Okay. Well, that's just quite a lot. Well, I had to read that again, like, sorry. I don't know what percent that is, but I, I, just, I, I was actually, I had a comment way back when you started this thinking moving back from the UK to China must be a shock to the system. Oh, well, although, wouldn't actually, it be? The, UK is, the UK is pretty, uh, pretty monitored as well, but in a different way. Um, yeah, I mean, this is quite interesting, and I guess that you're referring, I don't know the, I can't remember the name, but that particular Black Mirror episode yeah. um, with the scores where right. the woman can't, can't do anything because her score's too low and... Etc. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, it would it would actually be <laughs> if it were at all possible. It would be really interesting to interview someone uh, about this. But I get the feeling that would be quite difficult. <laughs> yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I suspect we're going to see more stories about this. So mm. I, I would say, stay tuned, listeners. Um, this will be something coming out. Um, yeah, and it'd be interesting to see if any other countries look at this kind of stuff. I'd, I would kind of hope not, but who knows? All right, I am. Uh, I think Kate, you should take the next one because yeah. you have another article uh, on your list I've got one that more. also references Black Mirror. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, it wasn't deliberate that we were having this kind of, you know, <laughs> dystopian tech kind of morning here, but um, I don't know. It well, kind it's of came it's been out one of those way. weeks. So. This one is, um, it's called The Father of the Internet Sees His Invention Reflected Black 
back, sorry, through a black mirror, and it's from NPR, all take considered by Laura Seidel. Apologies, listeners. Um, and it's about um, Vince Vint Cerf, who was Vince Cerf. Yeah, and I, I saw, I've seen him in person. Were you there at that? I was. Kate? Yes, there you were. Yeah. He was obviously one of the creators of um, the internet. Mm. When it was used in um, for you know for scientists and academics to do data science and research and transfer knowledge um, through the defense department, so this is back in eighty four and it just talks a, very, a little bit about um, yeah. you know w- when he went to a a conference in eighty eight people were talking about you know selling products for the internet commercial vendors, and he thought, mm. wow, someone's going to use want to actually make money out of this internet thing it's crazy, mm. you know. But um, he wasn't opposed to people using it. He was just opposed to people making money of it in those days because he kind of thought everyone should have the capacity to take advantage of this um, this great technology. But I think the thing that's maybe surprised them a little bit, perhaps, was the dark. This you know evolution of the dark internet and. Um, I don't know, <laughs> the internet used for cybercrime and industrial espionage and harassment huh. and stuff. Because when they created the internet, of course, you could um, surf it anonymously, unlike a telephone, you don't need a number mm-hmm. or anything like that. And they just didn't. Well, no, you, did, you did then, I think. I think. Well, uh, he, he says he yeah. never thought this stuff would, would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, I mean, this is part of a talk I've given quite a lot, yeah. that engineers are endlessly. Uh, naive and optimistic about how their technology will be used. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he kind of talks a little bit about how um, there's some correlation between, um, I don't know, the, the evolution of the internet and William Gibson's um, Necromancer, which is- I, I read that book and I found that book very overrated. But anyway. <laughs> I read it at high school, I think, but I can't quite mm. remember it that I well. I read it recently. Must admit. I, I, I found, as with a lot of cyberpunk books, I am completely confused as to what's going on half the time. Yeah, um, anyway. I think it's a popular literature book in um, many universities, I suspect. Probably now, especially so, yeah. Yeah. So that's well, kind of it, my main link. This was this a, an NPR episode, was it, or was it an article? It was an article, but there was yeah, also an okay. interview. Yeah. Now, going off at a slight tangent here, although I think the, the, the connection is that Vidsurf is a Google employee. So ah, nicely that's done. Ten, the very tenuous connection there. This is uh, about Fuchsia, um, Google's new operating system, question mark. This has been up and down on developer press for a while, but this is an article in particular on how to geek. Um, what is Fuchsia? Well, no one really knows. It's, uh, it's been a, rep- a series of repositories under uh, Google's um, auspice for some time. Uh, it claims to be a sort of cross-platform, multi-device operating system uh, it uses uh, Google's Dart and Flutter cross-platform languages to uh, build applications. Um, and people have got it to run on Android devices. They've got it to run on Chromebooks. They've got it to run on some proper laptops. Uh, and it doesn't do a great deal right now, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, I think one of the things that many people may not know with Android is that Google has always been a bit um, at the whim of uh, external parties, Uh Android has a Linux core, which is an open source project, but um, it's, you know, uh, it's someone else's thing, I suppose. And then it uses Java, and uh, there was a famous court case a few years back between Oracle, the current owners of Java, and Google, 
and a whole bunch of uh, issues around this. So, and I think also a lot of people feel like Android as it is and uh, Java especially have kind of run their course and have been keeping an eye out for potential alternatives. Now, Google have not denied or confirmed anything about Fuchsia, but it keeps getting developed (laughs) and things are happening around it. So, um, yeah, if you feel like living on the edge a bit and potentially bricking an old device, then give it a go and see what you think of it. It's not going to be terribly impressive right now, but (laughs) but it's interesting and I will continue to keep my eye on it and see where it develops. I have actually been keeping on it for about 18 months, I think. And it keeps developing and still no one has any idea what it's going to be used for. But um, anyway, <laughs> so, so that's that. That's future. Dystopian technology and then a new operating system. There we go. What a, what a, what a, what a segue, Kate. What a segue. Very nicely done. So before we continue on to our main sort of topic of discussion, um, I would just like to remind you that you can find previous show notes at com slash podcast. You could stay in touch with us on Facebook, and our Facebook page has been getting a little bit of activity over it the past has. few weeks. Uh, Facebook.com slash Mammal. And you can support the show at com slash support. Um, our new mailing list is also trickling along. Um, I think I need to update the website to make it easy to subscribe, but I've been sending out a few test episodes, and you can generally find the latest episodes on um, the latest issues, I should say, on our Facebook page. Okay, now we're going to talk about our main segment, which is a fairly infamous conference in Austin, Texas, called South by Southwest. It goes for a couple of weeks, spanning a lot of side events. You could arguably say it's a month. And it crosses, I guess, emergence of different conferences. So you've got tech, you've got music, you've got film and art. And our intrepid reporter, Chris, was there to check it out. You you slightly – it is a huge event. You slightly went overboard there. It's not nearly a month. It's two weeks. <laughs> okay. I, I, just, I had the impression there'd be sort of events before – the week before and the week after. No, not really. No, okay. no, no. But it, it felt – I was there for about five days and it felt like two weeks. Yeah. So let's say two weeks feels probably feels like a month to many of the people there. Yeah. Um, well, I went – so, yes, it's interactive component, which is sort of – I don't know. Interactive is a bit wishy-washy about what that means. And then there's music and film and then a lot of bits in between and a lot of parties. Um, I mostly went for interactive. I watched a few films, went to a few bits of music, but uh, I mostly went for the interactive. And it is huge. Uh, The actual, I mean, it's hard to describe quite how big it is. I'm not really sure how many people went there. No one could give me a concrete number. Yeah. Um, And... It's also spread out over multiple venues mm-hmm. over the city, the downtown city area, which in theory isn't that large. But because everyone's always in, you know, dozens of places, it's hard to get the big picture about how many people there are. So I think There's companies of- rent out um, houses or buildings and create their own larger <sighs> system. Is that right? It's a bit of all sorts of things. Yeah. So, yes, some companies do that. Some countries do that, like the EU, Germany. Um, uh, Brazil, Australia, Peru uh, had houses for a few weeks. Like the British had booths in some exhibition space and then a music area. Um, And, I mean, it really varied. And then some companies would maybe host a room for the day. Um, So, yeah, I mean... 
And then I guess there's the official program that's run by the the event organisers. I mean, I don't know. It's huge. Mm. And for you, what were kind of the highlights? Yeah, I've been I've been slowly. I, I'm writing up uh, my f- report for mm. D Zone. I think it's actually going to be two parts. Yeah, I'd because imagine. I'm not finished, and I'm currently at 1,700 words. <laughs> so I think it's going to be two parts. Yeah, definitely. Um, I did a couple of interviews. So I think I'm going to say my highlights were several themes. Okay. And bear in mind, as I alluded to, it's a huge event. You could go and ignore interactive completely and have a great time. Yeah. You could go and ignore music completely and have a great time. You could just go to interactive and stick to one theme and ignore everything else completely. Like, it's huge. So trying to say these were the themes is very difficult. It's like these were the themes that I went to is all you could really say. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so um, well, there's definitely a lot about things you'd expect, like artificial intelligence, mm. machine learning, and more positively, and I guess America is always a little bit ahead in these sorts of discussion, um, the ethics and good design around these. Mm. Uh, good design meaning not just in terms of the ethical perspective, yeah. but also I went to a very interesting talk on how, as a designer, do you actually design around artificial intelligence? Mm-hmm. If a machine is making all the decisions, you still need some kind of communication of that to people and how yeah. do you handle that, which is an interesting point. And I guess it's something a lot of designers are currently grappling with. Um, yeah. So that was interesting. Uh, the IEEE, oh. who are the Institute of... Electrical yeah. engineers. There's an E missing there. I don't know what the other E <laughs> is for, but anyways, ran an interesting program on ethics in design. That would be ethics in technology, which is something I have been very interested in recently. Um, I actually got the business card of the head of that program, so I'm really hoping we'll get them on for an interview very okay. soon. Uh, and I also strongly urge uh, everyone to maybe join the IEEE. I think I was a member when I was at university, actually, when I was doing my computer science degree as a student. And it's one of those interesting things, you know, as technologists, we tend to always look forward and sometimes forget about what's come before. Mm. And the IEEE and some other organisations like it have been looking into many of these issues for a long time. Yeah, that's true. Like not, you know, not, uh, some of these things are not new mm. and we sometimes forget about these institutions that have existed for decades. Yeah, so, I've interviewed a few of their members. Yeah, so I would uh, actually say it's interesting to look into that. Um there, I'm going to be a little bit skirt around the edges here. There was the vice president of design from a very large technology company who gave an interesting talk around uh, how she is handling issues and mm-hmm. problems with their application. Um, and it, it's always hard to say. Uh, a talk from someone like that is always difficult because there's going to be a certain amount of people who just dismiss it completely and just say it's just marketing propaganda. There's going to be a certain amount of people who say, oh, amazing, this company is really trying hard. And there's going to be a certain amount of people in the middle who don't really know what to think. So, yeah, but it was an interesting talk. Um, And at the very least, it's nice to know that there are individuals at these large companies Mm. who care, I suppose. Um, I guess wrapping up in this section was uh, I interviewed, and this will be uh, an audio interview that will come out as a podcast Mm -hmm. in the next, probably the next week, actually. I interviewed the awesomely named Garland Gilchrist II <laughs> and uh, Aviv Ovadia, who actually some of you may know. Um, he predicted a few things in the past. I can't quite remember if we've actually talked about the post he wrote a few months ago. But anyway, um, and they are two of the founders behind the new Centre of Social Media Responsibility at the University of Michigan. 
Um, only launched <laughs> about two weeks ago, so they haven't done a great deal yet. But they are intending to, I guess, I'm always a bit, bit reticent of engineers who try to fix engineering problems with engineering solutions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, don't, don't dismiss things until they've tried. Um, I guess their intention is to look into these problems that networks are experiencing and try to provide analytics and dashboards to help them identify those and ways of fixing them, which, yeah, I will see. I'm not 100% sure if I'm completely convinced by the the idea, but I like their ideals. So but, we'll see how you it know, goes. there's one thing you haven't really covered, which I know the listeners will be interested in. What about the parties? I'm going to get to the parties. Let me get to the parties in a bit, okay? <laughs> <laughs> There was a bit about blockchain, um, mostly kind of intersections of blockchain, a few random events here and there. I think, again, the highlight for me in this section, and there will be an interview again in the next week or so, was with the CEO, Zach LeBeau of Singularity DTV, a sort of strange company name. But they basically are working on, and have been for a little while, uh, in terms of the blockchain-based uh, startups. They're actually kind of... Um, one of the first generations, I suppose. Mm. And it's a, a media, music and film mostly at the moment, but I said, you know, could we do podcasts? He said, of course you could. Um, distribution, blockchain power, distribution, rights management and monetization platform. Okay. A, a long way back when in an episode we interviewed uh, Peter from Resonate.is, yes. who uh, were doing something similar, one side of this, uh, Singularity DTV are kind of doing a much more bigger picture on all this. Um, some very interesting ideas they have actually. And to me, it's like a perfect combination, if it works out, of Napster, like the distribution op- opportunities for Napster, mm. plus the kind of pre-funding of Kickstarter, <laughs> um, but with actual monetization. Uh, and we'll see. It's, it's a very interesting idea, especially as an ex-musician, it really... Uh, appealed to me um, and I will definitely actually possibly give a go of putting our podcast onto it and seeing what happens cool um, so many other things I could talk about that well, you could read the article for I guess the other one I will quickly mention before we get to the parties was a lot about space uh, space race uh, Elon Musk was there of course yeah. um, but more interesting to me on a much smaller scale although Elon Musk does have a connection to this country. Uh, Kate is Australian. I'm half Australian. We mentioned this before. Uh, I went to Australia House quite a bit because they had good food. <laughs> um, no, because I was interested in seeing what the old country was up to. Um, I went, interestingly, to their panel on the Australian space race. Uh, Australia didn't actually have a space agency until last September. And apparently one of the comments from the government was, New Zealand has one, we should have one. But uh, more pragmatically, I think it was that um, in the past couple of years, there's been a rapid rise in space startups. And I actually remember meeting some friends years ago who were doing something around this, to 85 space startups, which if you actually consider the effort that goes into that kind of um, startup, that's quite a lot, especially for a country the size of Australia. Um, Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's really happening there. I mean, Australia presents some unique opportunities for space. Firstly, there's a lot of space. (laughs) So there's a lot of space for space. Um, Rocket launches and things like that. Australia has also always had a very close ties with um, 
NASA because it's actually on the flight path from uh, Florida and uh, Houston, I think. Uh, and language and time zones and things mean it's very favorable for that. So they've always had very good connections, but now they're starting their own project. Very um, small scale in the grand scheme of things, probably mostly satellites, maintenance, research, those sorts of things. You know what I'm really but, wondering? How the earth do you get funding for a space project? Well, I mean, this is the whole fascinating thing about uh, space startups now is that it is now um, within reach of a business as opposed to governments. Huh. Launching rockets, launching satellites yeah. now doesn't cost billions. It costs millions, hundreds of millions maximum, which actually in the grand scheme of things is not a lot of money. Um, and uh, with Elon Musk and SpaceX mm. and other projects using reusable parts and things yeah. like that, it's actually quite interesting. And it's also very useful in aspects you may not think about. It's not all about Mars exploration. Like, for example, one of the founders of one of the startups there, um, she mentioned that actually they are mostly used. I mean, Australia is a big place. America is also a big country. China, countries like this. Satellites are often used just for something as seemingly mundane as monitoring a farm. It's true, yeah. <laughs> and that's what all of theirs were launched for. Like I've heard about this, she, yeah. she mentioned there are farms in Australia bigger than Germany. Oh. You know, and one person on a, in a truck can't survey that. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. so yeah. So that's, uh, that's actually what a lot of uh, rockets and things are used for. And there was a lot of conversation around Mars missions and things like that. I think this is becoming our generation's um, kind of moon landing. <laughs> um, no one really knows why we need to do it, but everyone just wants to do it to prove <laughs> we can, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, parties. I think my general uh, comment for South by Southwest was pace yourself. <laughs> I was absolutely exhausted. Uh, there's a lot of parties. There's endless amounts of free food, free drinks if you look for them. But I think I learned very, very quickly was don't get distracted. There's so much you can do and so many people telling you what you should be doing. It's mm. a huge FOMO fest. And it's best to just stick to what you're interested in and just go with it, really. Uh, don't worry about trying to do everything. Uh, and especially I found, my, I found myself in the first few days in a Facebook messenger chat where everyone kept talking about the best parties. <laughs> and I ended up exiting it because I found it too stressful. Yeah, I don't blame you. Because it constantly distracted you from you doing what you thought you wanted to do. Yeah. So that would be my main word of advice is – just go and do what you feel like. And there's so much happening. There's always going to be something interesting, even if you don't think you're in the coolest place. And believe me, there are a lot of people trying to always be in the coolest place. Mm. That can be an exhausting um, process that maybe doesn't mean you have the best time. Yeah. The coolest place is always the best place for you, shall we say. <laughs> Yeah, so that was South by Southwest. I'm hoping Kate will come with me next year because it was certainly a, a, quite a... Um, Super keen. Yeah, yeah, eventful event. <laughs> uh, yeah, very interesting. And I will have two posts coming out that in the next probably two weeks, I think. Anything else from you, Kate? Uh, no, is- that's about it for this episode. I've got a bunch of posts coming up as, um, as yourself, so I'll mm-hmm. be probably talking a bit more about those in our next episode. All right, then. Well, do you want to remind people once again where they can find us, Kate? Absolutely. You can go to gregariousmammal.com. You can go to Facebook slash gregariousmammal. You can go to 
kristchinchilla.com or katelawrence.com and that's Kate with a C, Lawrence with a W and find us online. Yep. Um, so you, there will be a few interview shows coming up in the next week or so, possibly a couple more than usual, uh, just because I've got some that are very timely that I want to get out and to make up for our slight silence over the past few weeks. But in the meantime, I always, I can't remember who used to say this, but uh, I always love this phrase. If you have been, thanks for listening.